prepare your Bibles and turn with me to the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, Revelation and 20, chapter 22. Revelation 22, there are church Bibles at the back if you would like to use one of those. And next week, Lord willing, we'll return to our Genesis series and uh, we'll be picking up at Genesis 19. But this week I want to look at the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. And I want you to see with me the three speakers that address us in the last chapter of God's revelation to us. You see, first of all, there is the angel who's guided John through the visions in Revelation. And the angel addresses John with instructions and commentary and explanation. That's the first voice. The second voice is John himself, Revelation 22. And John addresses us, the reader, the hearer, with explanations and exhortations. And Jesus Christ, at several points throughout the chapter, if you like, interjects or interrupts with direct address to us all who read and study God's word together. And the three voices in Revelation 22 deal with three themes. Revelation 22 is continuing from Revelation 21, where John describes the age to come. And in Revelation 22, we, we see, we consider three things about the age to come. John shows us some details about the place, the new creation. And then the time. When will these things finally come? And the person. And at the centre of Revelation is not a what or a when, but a who. The book of Revelation is, as chapter 1 tells us, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Which is where John wants us to linger and put it in show and give, give our attention. But would, would you pray with me as we read God's word? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the book of Revelation. I thank you for the riches that it brings. And Holy Spirit, help me to speak well of the person in this book, the Lord Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. Amen. This is God's word, Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielded its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. 
I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have right to the tree of life that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside of the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. May God bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. I wonder if you remember, for us it's years ago, but maybe you've got grandchildren or young children, know the kind of questions children like to ask on the back seat of journeys. Like five minutes into a... 13-hour journey. When are we getting there soon? So, where are we going? When are we going to get there? And who's going to be there? And they are enormously important questions to get answers to. Not so much in a traffic jam on the M6 or the A66, but especially when it comes to matters of eternity. One of the words that I'll always remember my father preaching in the street was you have a never dying soul and you will spend eternity somewhere and revelation 22 answers these three questions for us as we travel onward on the long journey of the christian life and revelation 22 answers the question where are we going revelation 22 tells us about heaven the place the new creation uh, it's, it, will, it will save me forever, but I remember walking with Peter Maiden through Keswick just a couple of years before the Lord took him, and he turned to me and said, James, because he said, I'm a good brethren, he said, I'm a good brethren boy, when do we last hear a really good sermon about heaven? And he is there with his Saviour and his Lord. So Revelation 22 tells us about heaven and the place. Revelation 22 also answers the question, when will we get there? Which is an important question. Some people have tried to guess that or predict that, didn't they? And they've always been made to look rather small. It tells us about the timing of the new creation that Jesus is bringing. And Revelation 22 answers the question, who will be there? Because it focuses gloriously on the one person above who others, above all others, whose presence makes heaven heaven. 
and that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The Lord Jesus makes heaven, heaven. So where are we going? The first question, Revelation 22, 1 to 5. In chapter 21, you see John has described the new creation as a great city, New Jerusalem, the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary of the temple of God. And in chapter 22, 1 to 5, another dimension is added to that picture. And this time we see the new creation as a garden. A city that is a temple is a garden. And not just any garden, it is Eden restored, but Eden surpassed. Just have a look at the text for me. See, there's a river. There's a, the river of life that's running through the middle of the street of the city from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And on either side of the river is a tree. John probably means trees of sorts, of all sorts. And he's building on the vision of Ezekiel 47, where Ezekiel saw a life-giving river flowing from the temple. And on either side of the river in Ezekiel's vision are many trees. And Ezekiel says their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So Ezekiel has Eden in mind as he pictures the new creation. There is a river in Eden and the tree of life is located there. But right away as we think about how John describes Eden restored in chapter 22 of the last book of the Bible, there are contrasts with Eden in the first book of the Bible. Because in Eden there is one tree of life. In the new creation there are many. In verse 2, the tree of life bears 12 kinds of fruit once every month. 12 kinds of fruit, 12 months of the year, all year round. And the number 12 is a number that is laden with symbolism. The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. And it's the number, the symbol for the full company of the people of God. So what we're being told, that in the new creation, the fruit of the tree of life will be an abundant supply, perfectly matching the needs of the people of God without any waste, without any remainder. All of God's redeemed will eat of the fruit of the trees of life and the nations will find healing in its leaves. And it's a picture now of abundance, fullness and sufficiency. The salvation that the Lord Jesus wins in its consummation, it's greater than the blessedness that Adam knew before the fall. Because the Eden of Revelation 22 is greater and more glorious than the Eden of Genesis 2. The reality of the world to come surpasses the world that we have lost. We all have access to the fruit of the tree of life all the time. And as verse 3 puts it, no longer will there be anything to curse. Which is why I sang joy to the world. No longer will there be any curse. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve in the first Eden fell from the original righteousness in which they had been created. And the curse of God fell on their sin, afflicting our first parents and all of their descendants after them. We know, don't we, if we're honest, the curse of sin. And the world that we've lived in ever since. 
But God promised in Genesis 3.15 that a redeemer, the seed of the woman, would deliver them, deliver us and make all things new. The child of promise of Genesis 3.15 is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one who crushed the serpent's head. How? By means of the cross. And here in Revelation 22, the final outworking of his victory on the cross is revealed. The ancient curse is undone. No longer will there be any curse, John says. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So it's not just the undoing of sin, not just the restoration of Eden lost. No, the heaven. Where are we going? Heaven. Do you believe that? Do you look forward to that? The outflowing of the river of life. Access to the fruit of the tree of life for all. Healing for the nations. There is more grace, more blessing, more happiness. We'll know more of God, left sweeter and more intimate communion with Jesus and the fullness of the Holy Spirit in the new creation than Adam ever did or ever could have had even in the unfallen Eden of the first creation. We know him not only as creator and lawgiver, as Adam did. Brothers and sisters, we know him as redeemer, saviour, as Abba Father who has adopted us. Christ, our elder brother, his spirit inhabiting our hearts as the perfect comforter and advocate. God took occasion from our sin and misery after Eden was lost to display to the world more of himself than he would have had there been no sin at all. So in Revelation 22, we see not only Eden restored, but Eden surpassed. More of God in Christ by his spirit, more joy, more rest, more glory than Eden could ever contain. And so, verse 3, no longer will there be anything cursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night shall be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun. The Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And if you look at verse 14, John points us back to the imagery of the garden. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. Outside of the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. What is it that John wants us to make sure of as we contemplate the garden city of the new Jerusalem? He wants us to make sure that we have a right to belong, to enjoy its blessedness. And he tells us how we might have that right. He does not say that those who have the right to the tree of life or to enter the city by its gates have committed no sin. They're not, or that they're not guilty of those terrible things that he lists as characteristic of those who've been left outside. No, what he says is, blessed are those who wash their robes. The implication is clear. Their robes were equally filthy. 
as those outside. It isn't that they were better, purer, cleaner, but it's that they know in their filthiness that they must come and wash and be clean. Brothers and sisters, my dear friends, has Jesus made you clean? And John is picking up of language from Revelation 7.14 when he sees God's people who washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And John says, that is what we must make sure that we all have done if we're to have a right to the tree of life and entry into the garden city, the sanctuary temple, the new Jerusalem, the new creation. We must have our robes washed white in the blood of the Lamb. There's so many hymns we could have spent all morning singing, couldn't we? But uh, his blood can make the foulest clean, his blood availed for me. Can you sing those words? His blood can make the foulest clean, his blood availed for me. You're not saying that you're not a sinner. You're saying that you're a sinner who has been washed in the blood of the Lamb. That is to say, you've come to Christ who died to make you clean, trusted in him alone. Have you done that this morning? Have you trusted yourself wholly to him? Have you washed your robes in the blood of the Lamb? The gates of the eternal city will be forever closed and you will never have any right to the tree of life unless you've washed yourself in the blood of Christ and made your robes clean. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty sins. Has Jesus made you clean? And notice the tense that John uses. It's present continuous. You could translate it like this. Blessed are those who are washing their robes. Those who wash in the blood of the cross. Wash and wash and wash. It becomes a good habit of life. That we're never away from the cross. The first time we come to the cross, Jesus washed away our guilt once and for all. But then we learn we need to come again and again and again because the stain of sin remains. Its polluting presence is not so easily laundered. Now the blessedness of Eden surpass. It doesn't belong to the holier than thou who believe themselves to be morally superior and who somehow manage in their own words to keep themselves unsullied by the crumbling morals of the world. No, those who enter the new creation know that every day I must come. Jerry Bridges, who wrote so wonderfully, full of grace, said, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Every hour I must come back to Calvary and have the blood of the Lamb make me clean. That's where we're going. That's the place. Heaven, the new Jerusalem, the garden city, Eden surpassed. And the gates of that garden city are flung wide open to those who've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Secondly, when will we get there? I wonder if you heard the repetition on the lips of Jesus as he spoke to us in our reading. It almost is that every time he speaks, he says, Behold, I'm coming soon. Behold, I'm coming soon. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming soon. And then add the angel's words in verse 6. 
He has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Or verse 10, the time is near. So when will we get to Eden? Glorious Eden surpass. I know when. Soon. It's an answer from the book of Revelation. Soon and very soon we're going to see the king. There is a sense of immediacy, imminence, about the coming of Jesus that saints have looked for in every age. The imminency, the immediacy of the coming of King Jesus. The coming of the garden city temple of the city of the living God, New Jerusalem. But you say, well, it's been 2,000 odd years since John wrote these words. How is that soon? Well, it is soon. In terms of time, in the same way as our sufferings are light and momentary in terms of severity. Which is how Paul describes here and now for all Christians in 2 Corinthians 4. For this light, momentarily, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. So from, it, from an eternal perspective, looking at the things that are unseen, knowing the eternal weight of glory, compared, beyond all compared, that waits for us. Paul says that the afflictions that cause us outwardly to waste away are light and momentary, just for a little while. But soon... That is the believer's stance, my friend. Soon, death will be swallowed up in victory. Soon, sin will just be a memory which Jesus Christ hangs the banner of his triumph. When the doctor says you will live for this for the rest of your life, you can say with sincerity, this is a light and momentary affliction. But soon, my friend, Jesus is coming, which is how we quieten restless children on a long journey. Are we nearly there? Soon. Soon. And on a journey it can mean a million different things. But what Jesus says is soon. And that's what Jesus is saying to us. Maybe you're suffering this morning. Maybe you're limping. Maybe you're wondering how long. Jesus is saying soon, son. Soon, beloved daughter. I am coming soon. And because of that, we can wait a while longer, can't we? Soon. And three things to do with the truth in Revelation. Verse 7, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 10, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Do not add or take away the contents of this book. Verse 18 and 19, because the time is soon. The time is near. Jesus is coming soon. So keep the words of the book. Don't seal up the words of the book, which means don't keep it to yourself and don't alter the contents. Don't add or subtract to it things that you think would be preferable to you, but submit to its fundamental integrity. Keep the prophecy. Do not seal it up. Do not alter the contents. How do you keep the perspective that Jesus is coming soon, especially when you're hurting? when it is hard and sore and long and wearisome. 
Why are people so ordinary? Why is there so much unforgiveness? Why is there so much meanness? How do you hold on to the idea that these burdens and these wounds that we bear are really light and momentary? The scripture says you keep the words. You don't seal up the words and you don't alter the words. Many of us shy away from the book of Revelation because there's so many different views on it. And John doesn't want us to shy away from it because it's glorious. And there's a message of hope and there's a message of encouragement and there's a message of comfort. And he wants us to learn the lessons that it teaches, the heeds it's warning. And he wants to point us in the direction that the book of Revelation points us to the triumph of the Lamb. Wonderful commentary at home, just the triumph of the Lamb. Jesus has won. He has won the triumph of the Lamb. And that's what the book of Revelation is designed to do. It's to lift up our spirits, to encourage us. Designed to keep us pressing on, knowing that Jesus is coming soon. Which is part of the function of the whole book of Scripture. But when you neglect the book, not only the book of Revelation, but all 66 books of Holy Scripture. When you neglect it, you shouldn't be surprised if pressing on gets harder and the mountains get steeper. Because God gave his word for the comfort and nourishment of your soul. And his word gives you the gospel lenses through which to view the world and even yourself. And his word speaks to your heart and reminds you of truth. True truth, Francis Schaeffer called it, ultimate reality. I've said it a few times, so you'll forgive me for saying it again, but a visitor recently said, in here, in here, with God's people is reality. Out there is craziness. Out there is chaos, but in here is reality. Why that? Why? Because the truth of Jesus and his word. So don't neglect the book. Keep the book. Don't seal it. Proclaim the message of the book. Don't hide it. Don't change its message. No, bow before it. Embrace it. Love it. Do you love the book? Do you love the Bible? Where are we going? Eden surpassed. When are we going there? Soon. And keep your noses in the book that you might hear its reminder again and again. Soon, son. Soon, daughter. You can hold on. Soon. And who is going to be there? Jesus. And John wants to rivet our attention on Jesus. Jesus himself inter you know, it interrupts throughout this chapter. He interjects as John is reporting. And it's not so much that John wants to fix our eyes on Jesus, although that is true. Jesus himself demands our attention. Verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In chapter 1, verse 8, it was God, the Lord God Almighty, who said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And now, Revelation 22, Jesus says, don't ever let anyone tell you that the Scriptures never claim that Jesus is God. Here it is, as clear as day. The God who stands before and above time and space, the Alpha and the Omega, is identical with Jesus Christ. 
At first glance, these statements that Jesus makes regarding himself, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, they appear to be saying essentially the same thing. To some extent, that is true. But the last line of the three is very interesting. I am the beginning and the end. And in the Greek, Jesus says, I am the Archi and the Teleos. The Archi and the Teleos. He is the Arche, which means that he's not just the first in a sequence. It means he is the source and the archetype of every other in the sequence. Everything that is, everything that will be, derives its existence and takes its fundamental design in relation to God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the teleos, not just the conclusion, the end point, but the destiny. Daryl Johnson puts it this way, and it's very helpful. The teleos of an acorn is an oak tree, and the teleos of creation is Jesus Christ. He is our destiny. We will become like him, for we shall see him as he is. History, creation, your life, your life, my life, is moving towards him. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. He is the telos, the destiny. It is all for Jesus. And he is the bright and morning star. I am the root and descendant of David. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the root and offspring of David. He is the root of David. King David comes from him. And at the same time, he is great David's greatest son. He is David's heir, the Messiah. He is the God who became man in the person of Jesus Christ. And he is the bright morning star. That's one of my favourite titles for Jesus. He is the bright morning star. And it is the last title that Jesus takes to himself in Scripture. Not king, not judge, not lord, but bright morning star. And the morning star appears when? When the night is at its darkest. There are still hours to dawn. And the morning star appears and you know that day is coming. That daybreak is coming. And all the darkness notwithstanding, it's so easy to be discouraged and depressed at what is going on in the world around us. But all the darkness notwithstanding, day is coming. Because he is the bright morning star. And that is, this is Jesus, John says. The bright morning star who shines in the darkness. He shines in the darkness today to remind us that he is coming again. And he is the one that we're waiting for. And he is the one we need. Let you into a secret. Heaven is not about you. It's not about an end to suffering, although that will be gloriously true. And it's not about the glorious reunion that for certain awaits us. What is heaven? What makes heaven heaven? It's seeing Jesus. It will be you, me, face to face with Jesus. That's what makes heaven heaven. The bliss of heaven will be the discovery that he is supremely worth it. 
He is worthy. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. His presence is what makes heaven heaven. Heaven won't be heaven because we're sinless, that'd be wonderful. Or that we will have imperishable bodies. Or the end of sickness and death, cancer, COVID, gone. But Jesus makes heaven heaven. Daryl Johnson quoted Annie Johnson's Flint's poem, The Lord Himself, in this connection. And it works with so many of the themes of the book of Revelation. And I think it gets the point across beautifully. It is not for a sign we are watching. For wonders above and below, the pouring of vials of judgment, the sounding of trumpets of woe, it is not for a day we are looking, not even the time yet to be, when the earth shall be filled with God's glory as the waters cover the sea. It is not for a king we are longing to make the world kingdoms his own. It is not for a judge who shall summon the nations of earth to his throne. Not for these, though we know they are coming, for they are but adjuncts of him, before whom all glory is clouded, beside whom all splendour grows dim. We wait for the Lord, our beloved, our comforter, master and friend, the substance of all that we hope for, beginning of faith in its end. We watch for our saviour and bridegroom, who loved us and made us his own. For him, we are looking and longing for Jesus and Jesus alone. So how do we respond to that? Knowing that Jesus is the telos of all things, the end, the goal, the destiny, the prize, the reward of every believer's heart. And our passage teaches us to respond. It teaches us to respond by saying, come. By saying, come, in two directions, by the way. And first of all, in verse 17, we are to say, come to the world. To say, come to our friends and neighbours. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who's, who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The Holy Spirit, John says, is pleading for you to come. The bride, that is the church, cries for the world to come in its witness and preaching and proclamation. John, pleads with you to come. If you are thirsty this morning, the water of life is available to you. Come without price, freely by faith in Jesus and drink. Come to Jesus. Come and live. Remember the time is near soon and one day the day of grace will be over and all possibility of repentance will cease. The chance to come to Jesus will be gone one day. And then as verse 11 says, let the evildoers still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy shall still be holy. Characters and destinies will be fixed when we stand before Christ. So come, but come today. Don't come tomorrow, come today. Come knowing that the time is soon and come and drink to the satisfaction of your soul. You are welcome. You're welcome like nowhere else. Come to Jesus. And then look at verse 20. So we're to cry to the world to come and then we're to cry to Jesus to come. 
Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Invite the world before Jesus comes and doing it, praying for Jesus to come as you do. Plead for sinners to come to Christ and plead with Christ to come to the world. Preach and pray. Offer Christ and cry out for heaven. Where are we going, brothers and sisters? Eden surpassed. Do you have a right to take from the fruit of the tree of life? Have you washed your robes in the blood of the Lamb? When will we be there? Soon. You can hold on. Soon. And who is going to be there? Jesus Christ, the Lamb. Who will be all your glory in Emmanuel's land. Will captivate your heart. Will catch your breath away. And fill you with inexpressible joy. Full of glory that will last for eternity. So come. While there is still time. Come. Because the time is soon. Come to Jesus. Even so. Come Lord Jesus. Amen. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table in a few moments. And uh, if you are a believer, if you've washed your robes in the blood of the Lamb, you're very welcome to participate in the Lord's Supper. But we'll stand to sing, There is a fountain filled with blood. Yes. Mm-hmm.